the thing you wanted to do because you didn't want to be a journalist you wanted to be a footballer that was your dream uh just tell us about this quotation that um i think it's very very is it the first chapter of the book you say there's a teacher who says ah there's only two in 1,000 young kids who become a pro footballer. And I love your response. I think I'm going to use it. I was in the playground at seven years old at school and the under 11s wanted me to play for their school team. And the headmistress didn't want me to because she felt I was too small and too young. And um, the, the teacher that was looking after us in the playground said to me, Ricky, what do you want to be when you're old? I said, I want to be a, miss, uh, a footballer, miss. She goes, oh, only two out of every hundred, she said, and become footballers. I said, well, miss, I'm going to be one of those two. And that was the end of the conversation. So even at that young age, you know, some people want to be a doctor, a fireman, a pilot. I just wanted to be a footballer. I didn't know how I was going to go about to make that come to fruition. But um, thankfully, it worked out for me in that aspect, from the playing perspective. It certainly did. 14 years at Luton, and uh, you're helping me to tick off Luton Town, uh, which I don't, but some Watford fans do L asterisk T asterisk N, but I'm a grown up. Um, you've played at the Vic. What was it like? Oh, Cauldron of Fire, no matter what occasion it was. Even though it's, it's strange because, as you say, Jenny, there was such a fierce, um, I want to say hatred or lack of respect for Watford and Luton fans. From the playing perspective, we always got on famously with all the different generations that came through at Watford, right from George Riley and before, and Steve Sims and those guys, and we obviously Digger then came with Johnny Barnes and Luther, and I grew up in Brent, so you know, I'd known Luther most of my adult life, I was only 11 years old, and, and his family. And you know, just another little tidbit here would be Luther's mum used to cook at Larry Constantine. Oh, the I was president wow. of. So it was a community and it really was the village. But to the fans, it was this rivalry. This is the one game that we want to win and we don't care if we lose all the other games for the season. But to us, it was, yeah, let's compete, let's win this. But these are my mates, uh, Mo Johnson, you know, all of them, Kenny Jacket, Wilf Rostron. It was such a, well, it, it, it was a wonderful time to, to play because it was so competitive. And remember, stylistically, it was two totally different styles. Yeah, I'd love um, to see some playbacks of the game because, yeah, Watford is lump it Luther and Luton is play it through the thirds. Right. And it made such an entertaining game. And again, you know, Graham Taylor is no longer with us. And I love Graham Taylor. He's a great human being and he had his style of play. And I always wondered with David Pleat, his style of play might be more suited to international football to become England manager than perhaps Graham's was, even though Graham did a great job. But David was a very, very innovative coach. He was a very clever, astute coach. He was a very good with psychology in terms of how you would address the players and the team. And he he had that great eye. And I think it's been documented that Brian Cuff wanted him on on his staff, but he stayed with Harry Haslam because Harry said, I'm going to move on at some stage. And when I move on, I'm going to recommend you get this job. I think that's why he stayed at least before 1978 when he actually got the job. Rickridge Road, fantastic, fantastic atmosphere. Generally a really nice surface for what it was. It was heavy, churned up at times, but really nice playing arena. And I always enjoyed playing there, even if we did come up in in the wrong end of results at some stages. 
it was still always great. I will have to ask my Uncle Clive, who took his sons and now his sons take the grandchildren to Watford. Uh, so Uncle Clive will have seen you and Jamie and Daniel would have seen you. Uh, but of course, they had their own superstars to cheer on. Uh, and of course, you may be aware that Tim Rich is helping David Pleat to write his book. So I look forward to seeing you mentioned in David Pleat's book. David Pleat was Jewish. Do you think that's why he had a kinship with you and you with him, that you were both outsiders? Um, possibly. He didn't see colour per se. He saw ability. He saw talent. He had a very good eye for talent. No questioning. When you consider the bargains that he picked up and that team in the mid-70s... Who signs people from Edgware Town? Right. At 19 years old, an A-level student who's still unfurnished totally in regards to never being in the professional environment. And David season play and his brother Edwin was here as well and the two of them were there and Martin Sperrin and David made a judgment call and he, he, he signed Brian he said I, I see something there whatever he might have done I don't know how it went but what a great what the best one of the best signings if not the best signing he's ever made Ken Guthridge he was also the chief scout former Brighton chief scout and friends with David who you know he unearthed a lot of the jewels from that 77 70, 78 to 81 period, Kurt Stevens, David Moss, um, Steve Sherwood, Mark Hazelwood, and those particular guys that were fantastic. There is a player that I've never heard of, and I'm really embarrassed about this. One of the pieces that uh, I've written, for my own benefit but for others, is the middle-class footballer, and that's those who have been through university or whose parents have a comfortable middle-class life. I'm going to say his name is, well, I'm going to call him Mecca, but Emeka uh, Nwadjobi, signed from Dulwich Hamlet. Perfect, Jai. Thank you. This is why I've always been a believer in, and I put the passage in a book regarding Tony Book, in age is just a number with respects. Talent is talent. And, and, and in the UK, and I don't know in other countries, I can't really vouch for them, but there is a tendency whereby if you've gone past a certain age, if there's a number on it, and again, this number is fixitious to a degree because I, no one's actually noticed no scientific proof of it um they suddenly people stop looking at you but then in that era when i consider sewer regis was not a formerly apprentice luther was apprentice brian was an apprentice and four of us from brent ended up playing for england in 1982 um after leaving school in 1976 so the system i had in place wasn't foolproof or bombproof but mecca he went to university because his parents were Nigerian and they wanted him to get his education first before coming into the world of deciding what career he wanted to have. My mother wanted to do the same for me, to me. She was adamant I, would, I shouldn't play football because I might get injured or I might get thrown out at 18. But my brother persuaded her. In Mecca's case, he finished his course and played for England non-league schoolboys or whatever it is. Anyway, or university side, England university time because it was university um, scholarship that, or course that he was on but he finished his course and he went to play for Dulwich Hamlet and, and by all accounts and how David would have known about him or not word on the great from I don't know but there was a number of clubs that were queuing up for him and he'd only been at Dulwich for three weeks so David jumped straight in he saw someone of ability didn't see the colour necessarily he saw the speed the power the skill and it was unconventional to a degree in respects to, because Mecca played loose again, and someone who played without fear and 
came and gave us another dimension that potentially we didn't have before that could combine with Mick Harford or Brian and Mark Steen or whoever. And, and it, yeah, the first session I had with Mecca, it was incredible. We was at the gym, whether it was too, too bad to play outside and we went to the gymnasium. And, and every time I picked the ball up and I moved, I sent straight away that he was moving here. The synergy, even though we'd never worked before, played together. I, I, as they say in America, game those game. And I, for me, I felt Mecca was someone who was intelligent to recognize when and where. And he was very, very skillful. And he, and he was a, an all-round player who sadly his career was cut short with an injury that wasn't detected until it was too late. Mm. Well, your injury, I haven't really mentioned it because there's so much else uh, in this book. It's, it's, it's about, I don't know, 60, 65,000 words, but it packs a big punch. But you got injured uh, and they operated on it. And then you had a relapse. But you say that you changed the way that you played. And because I've never spoken to, obviously I've, I've spoken to pros before, but I've never spoken to a professional whose body is paid to, to work. You had to change your style of play after the injury. What kind of Yes, stuff? certainly. It, it was an injury that I was unaware of. And all footballers back in those days used to go into collision, impact injuries with your thighs, dead legs, whatever it was. Um, and the physiotherapists or the treatments back in those days, obviously it's moved on now, sports science is what it is, and, and the therapy is so much different now than it was then. So I would have a dead leg and the physio would try to break it down with his fingers, which is the worst thing you could do because you're supposed to let the blood settle first in one area, and just ice it. And so it starts to get back into your body system um, in its own way. So you ice it, you rest it, ice it, combat, ice it for a couple of days. Then you start to gently see if I can move it myself because it's, it's, it's just a bleed from an impact injury. But I had ultrasound on it, which escalated the bleeding. I had fingers in there to try to break down the contusion, which wasn't the right thing to do. But I, you know, you want to get back and play. So I, I didn't know any better. So injury would happen, I would come back and play two days, three days later. Injury would happen, same thing. Then one morning, I was in the dressing room. It's about three years after this whole sequence of occasion dead legs. And someone in my dressing room, we were playing West Ham that night, and we're just there. Someone just nonchalantly, his knee hit my side of my thigh. And this foreign body came out from the side of my thigh and it just the whole skin and everything came out like a, like a horror movie yeah. and it was a, a, a nodule and it was just sticking out there and I thought what is that? I called the physio and he said that seems like that's, that's calcified that's bone okay so but I could have full range of everything I could stretch I could twist I could kick I could run so I played that night with it sticking out this bone sticking out so settled down, there was no pain, there was no pain attached to it. And, okay, I, pull, I happened to pull my hamstring in Shrewsbury in the old Division 2 in 1980, I believe. I was out for six weeks, but that's a hamstring injury, I came back. Then in 1983, just before the biggest game probably of my life, uh, the season, against Watford, we'd drawn two all in the FA Cup on the Saturday at River Road, and we were playing Watford on the Monday night at Vicarage Road for the replay. And we'd come in Sunday morning and we're doing our normal walkthrough. And David Pleat says, anyone wants to stay out and do a little bit more? 
um, you're welcome to. And obviously, the guys used to love staying and kicking around, shooting, crossing, whatever. And I hit this shot during that period, and I felt a thud in my hamstring. I thought, I pulled my hamstring. And it got so sensitive, it became swollen straight away, and I was out for the next day. And Gary Parker came in and performed brilliantly, but we ended up losing 4-3 in, in extra time. Hey. And, it was a, and it was a most brilliant game to watch, but I was gutted that I couldn't play. So he treated this injury as a hamstring injury, as we thought it was previously. But every time I tried to just lengthen my stride slightly, I would feel a sensation like a, a, a poke in my, the top of my hamstring. It would get sensitive, it would get swollen, and I thought, oh. So they took me to a specialist, and he diagnosed that I had calcification, which was bone lying between my hamstrings and the side, the side where their dead legs were. And that had stemmed from the impact hitting so deeply into my femur that it started to have bone sparks sort of floating in my leg, which would then latch onto any blood that wasn't circulating in the right manner and then started to form into bone. Now, I, again, they injected me to deaden my nerve ends so I could play for the rest of the season. And I was playing with this thing all the time. I had no idea it was there. And I've been playing for years with it. And, um, so they did in the nurse, I could complete the season. I missed the down under tour. So Bobby Robson called me and said, Ricky, I've spoken to the, the surgeon. He thinks it's best that you have the operation now. You're still very much part of my plans. Don't worry, get yourself fit. You'll be back in here. So I had the operation. I went to Sweden for six weeks rehabilitation. Again, two weeks for the stitches after the operation. And then the operation was massive. They couldn't get the bone out. They had to cut into my hamstring to break the bone within the hamstring. And Bernard Megard, who was the surgeon at the time said he's never seen anything like this in the front one could he use the photographs that he has of it for his book as a foreign body that's just got ossification it's called ossification developed through blood that just congeals instead of circulating in the right manner i said of course he could use it but then i had two weeks for the stitches to come out four weeks of semi of what one could would consider rehab again it was different i didn't check the power whether I, my left foot was the same as my right foot now in terms of the hamstring strength and the curls. None of those things were done. It was just a general kind of recovery. As long as you weren't feeling soreness, go and play. And I've, you know, I've got two massive scars there. So I went to Sweden. And I had six weeks at Sweden. And again, it was difficult because I'm just overcoming this massive trauma. I don't know what I'm going to feel like. It didn't feel great. And then as I came back, I got that under my belt and then had a little break and then came back for pre-season. And then I would think, oh, I, I don't know if this thing's really better at this moment in time because doing sprints on a Friday, people that I was ahead of, not comfortably, but ahead of, now we were level. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe it's going to take a bit of time for me to regain that little bit more of that power that I had at that stage. Didn't tell anyone. No one didn't notice about it. I didn't, no one inquired about it. So from that perspective, I decided that for my own self, I used to dribble all the time when I was 17, 18, 19, and, and was good at it. And one of my strengths were to get the other side of my opposite, opposite person in midfield, take him out of the game, drive towards the defence, make the defence have to collapse, and then slip someone in on the run as best as I could. So that was a major part of my game. And when I started to do it again, I thought, okay, I've been working a little bit too hard here to try and shrug him up. So I started to play quicker, pick my moments when to make those bursts, pick my moments when to really dribble as often as I can. But still, I, I didn't feel 
I felt a difference in terms of my pace, but outside of that, everything else was fine. Right. I wonder, because this will go out uh, the day before the Luton versus Watford game. I can't remember when Luton last played Watford at Kenilworth Road. It must have been about 20 years ago. But Watford wow. beat Luton uh, 1-0 uh, the first uh, game of the se- season. Luton look to be surviving this season, which is good because they've got a very good manager, a very good CEO. From your perspective, as a, as a Luton legend... Uh, Mr. Luton, as I, I guess you're called, um, the direction of travel is upwards, much as it was under your mate Mick Harford, actually. They've got the right man- manager, and as a coaching perspective, it's Graham Jones, isn't it, the manager? No, um, Nathan Jones' manager and assistant coaches are Mick Harford and Paul Hart's gone. Is Paul Hart back there? I'll have a look. Maybe. Yeah, the answer is yes, Chris Cohen uh, and Paul Hart okay. are both. Oh, All right. coaching stuff, yeah. There you go. So they're both not Forest. I got a lot of time for Paul. We came through our youth team journeys when he was at Forest and I was at Sheffield Wednesday back in the mid 90s. So, very good coach, very good person. Don't know Chris, but he's again captain at Forest at stage. So, yeah, they seem to have balance now to you know, the right manner, whereby if you were going to be progress- progressive, you have to have some kind of. Um, sustainability in respect to the organization uh, without looking over too many fences or having too many false expectations thrust upon you and being able to just go about your business and do your job as adequately as you can do. I'll finish the point that I was going to make, which I forgot, which was that Nathaniel Shalabar has had two years worth of knee injuries. So a lot of Watford fans are constantly on his back. But Nathaniel Chalabar, like yourself, uh, Nathaniel came over from Sierra Leone. I was appalled because I noticed that you weren't in the list of England players and then I noticed that I'd looked at people who had played 10 games or more. So the people who have played three games for England include the great Bobby Tambling, um, the great, and not a Man United, Gary Birtles. Did you feel sorry for Gary Birtles when he went to Man U and couldn't score? No, I, I love Gary. He's another character, another good guy. And... It was just one of those unfortunate things. I guess he wasn't suited to Man United after being at Forest for so long and they had that system down pat at Forest. And again, at United, they didn't play the same system, to my knowledge. No, so I think that's right. Gary, yeah, Gary would have found difficulties in, in respect to fitting in initially, probably. And then when you get opportunities as a striker and it, you don't score, of course the spotlight's on you. But I... in respect to... His ability, without a doubt, he's uh, one of the best ones of that era. I would expect now that signings would be more clever. Jota going to Liverpool fits the system. Um, Ismail Assar going to Watford fits the system. Uh, David Hurst was probably one of the best strikers of that era. Only three caps for England. The great Brian Dean, three caps for England. Warren Barton, Stan Collymore, John Scales, Jason Wilcox, Tim Sherwood, Gabby Agbonlahor. And as we speak, Phil Foden, Callum Hudson-Odoi and Tom Heaton all had three caps for England. My theory that I had just as I was starting to talk to you is that because you played in this kind of wandering eight role, it just didn't suit what Bobby Robson wanted to do. Now, Bobby is a guy who I love this. He puts his arm around David Plink and says, when are you going to sell me that guy, Hill? Um, do you think Bobby, and there were a lot of politics to do with the FA that I'm not going to rehearse here, the English Correct. FA. Um, <laughs> too many politics. It's all Correct. politics, not about it's football. Um, but yeah, you played three times for England. You should have played more. 
Is it because you were the wandering eight, or is that was there something leaning on Bobby? I would I would hazard to guess. So Bobby, as the manager, preferred a four four two, and you know a flat four four two, up and down wide players of the ilk of Mark Chamberlain, Steve Coppel, um, Alan Devonshire, Graham Ricks, so of Trevor Stephen, all quality players in their own right, um, and then he preferred a midfield two of steady type, whether it's uh, Ray Wilkins and, and Brian Robson, Ben Hoddle and Brian Robson, one or the other. Now, I wouldn't have fitted, I would have fitted into one of the central ones, absolutely, because you know, that's how I grew up. I, I, when I played for England, I was 23 years old. Up until I was 16, I always played centre midfield. I was the governor in that respect. So it wouldn't have been a problem to me, but so Bobby only ever saw me play for Luton on the, as a right midfielder, admired me, I guess, when they beat us 3-0 and I, I hit the crossbar with a, a left foot shot when we were in Division 2 and they were in Division 1, but I, I played all right on the day, I would imagine. And from that moment on, so Bobby always said, I want, when are you going to sell me your boy Hill? And proof of that was when we just got up into the Premier League, the equivalent of the Premier League, I hadn't played a game in the Premier League. I would always played in the second division, so to speak. And he put me in his first ever squad. He picked me in that squad because he rated me highly as a footballer. When I made my debut coming on in Copenhagen, I came on for Rixie. So I played right side again to a degree. Um, Graham Ricks was playing for England in Copenhagen. And, but when I made my full debut uh, against West Germany, I played right side. And again, before the game, so Bobby said, Ricky, I know this isn't your position, but you can do a job there for me. And I said, of course, Sir Bobby, you know, I'd love the opportunity. And I felt it, I did okay on the night. Um, and I was hoping that that would then be a springboard to have more opportunities. But for whatever reason, again, whether it's stylistically, I think in the get-togethers, which I was part of for the whole season, whenever there was England squads, I think anyone that was there would, would testify that I produced some quality moments throughout those gatherings. I knew people like Phil Thompson, who was at Liverpool, wrote very nice words you know, after seeing me the first time in the squad about my ability and you know, what I could be. So, Good friend of Gerard yeah, Houllier, Phil Thompson. Well, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and Gerard's a great man, you know, and if, if we're not digressing too much, he's the only person today who's really done anything to help me in the football world as a manager to move on to try to better your life in respect of that. So I have a lot to thank Gerard for in that respect, to seeing something within me and being generous and kind enough, even though I never played for him, to recommend me, you know, with, with his recommendation to Lahal. Yeah, no, but, one, uh, no one seems to have a bad word to say about him. So from that perspective, I was frustrated because people would probably look at Glenn and see Glenn as, you know, this artist and, and a wonderful midfield player who was my, my favourite player to watch even though I was a player likewise. But I, I've always thought, and David Pete said it to me once in the dressing room, he said the England team that should play in the midfield three should be Hill, Robson and Huddle. He said that's the midfield three you should play. And that's his, that was his opinion. Now, so Bobby, obviously, like I say, managers have their philosophies, their identities, and it's very hard sometimes to, to shift their mind to accommodate someone. They'd rather stick with what they know best and I was a victim of that to a degree, I would imagine. I also could have played one of the two central midfielders quite comfortably. Yeah. Hypotheticals. 
1966, the England team, zero black players. And then Viv Anderson becomes the unwitting pioneer. It's joined by Luther and John Barnes. By the way, only three players to have been contracted to Watford have played for England. They're all black. Blissett, Barnes, Chalabar, which I think is incredible. I also like the fact that Watford fans are not racist, which is good. They're, I mean, they're bad in some respects, but not racist. And Nora no. Luton fans, I should add. No, 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 definitely not. But, again, there's a little bit... My, one of my close friends and a mentor of mine is called Al Hamilton, and he was the first journalist. He used to work for the West Indian world, and I believe it was... One of the other Western, he's from Jamaica originally, but came to England as a young man in the Windrush Times and done you know, sports. He, in fact, he found Frank Bruno. He was going out with Frank Bruno's sister. Oh, wow. And yes, when he was 15 years old and 14 years old, 15 years old. And he said, Who's this young man? And so she goes, My brother as well. He's a strapping young man. He should, does he box? Does he get any sport? And he hadn't done. So he took him to the local sports thing, um, club. He then introduced him to the lawlesses, whoever it was. He also cut himself a, a 10% deal, a handshake, which they reneged on. He took him to high court. And he's got, anyway, Al is a very <laughs> interesting character. He, he's also the creator of the Commonwealth Sports Awards, which is an event that recognized all sports people throughout the Commonwealth, an annual event, which was fantastic. He had Big stars like Usain Bolt, and you know, back in the day, it would be Shirley Fraser or Shirley Fraser. Right now, you know, the headliners from all over the world would come to this one event to pick up the awards. He's written a, a book called Frostbites on Fingertips, and it's a very informative historical journey through the decades of important moments in, in British uh, history, from the performer scandal to, um, you know, the, the strikes, to the, what goes on behind the scenes with the, the big fights, Ben Watson, which he was attending all of those things as a reporter. But he also makes a point within the book that says, Paul Reaney, for Leeds United, played for England on three occasions in 1966, so 68. And he's mixed race, born right. in Fulham. So... It then throws up the conundrum, was Viv the first or was Paul the first? And, you know, am I the fourth or was I really the fifth? So it's interesting. It's a great book. Uh, I actually wrote the foreword for it. So it's, it's Frostbite on Fingertips. I've just looked it up. I'm going to click buy as soon as our chat finishes. But it's on Kindle for three ninety nine, published about six months ago. Uh, and, yes, Al Hamilton. Hamilton. I, I know Hamilton. nothing about him. And so I will read this book. But I don't want to make you for the 500,000th time. And you've already talked about it to talk sport to promote the book. So I'm not going to do the thing when I ask you, because you've written about it in the book, Love of the Game, the man who brought the Rooney rule to the UK. And it's a very good chapter about how you're the unsung hero who should be sung a lot more uh, about getting just... Just diversity of thought. We talk about getting diversity of face and skin pigmentation, but it's really diversity of thought. And there are two moments that stand out uh, in the book. One, you write that there was a fear of a potential black uprising within 70s football. And two, when Brian Stein sat on the bench with you and the great Chris Ramsey, did that scare the Luton board? Can you say that? To be honest, it took me totally... Um, out of left field hit me 
terribly when I went to see the vice chairman that morning and he just suddenly entered into a barrage as to why Brownstein was on the bench. And I kind of looked at him strangely, what do you mean? Well, you said he would not be anywhere near the first thing. No, I didn't say that. He was brought in as a youth team stroke reserve team coach. And I must state again, via the chairman, Mike Watson-Chase, who had promised Brian a job back at the club. And I had no objections because I've known Brian like a brother for 12 years. I've never worked with Brian in a coaching capacity, but I know you know, him as a person. I know the knowledge that he has, and I'm sure that he could have helped many people within the game. On that occasion, we were going through a particularly difficult period. We were playing Oxford away. They were probably having the same kind of period as us, if not worse. And it was a game where I just wanted some more help for just from the mental perspective in terms of making players feel at ease you don't want to get the tension too high Brian's there if anyone wants to have a quiet word just generally just to be part of the the entourage nothing other than that not taking a warm-up not talking during the team talk not putting out team tactics not you know nothing like that just to be there as a support mechanism so when he went on through his barrage, it, it kind of hit me, think, well, what's the issue? Why Why that? So I, I, I never really, and then in the next breath, he turned around and said, well, you know, Chris needs to go. And again, that's come from, we drew, we draw nil-nil. It was a game we should have won 5 nil. And I hope there's some Luton fans that went to the game that can attest to that fact. But I know the supporters behind the bench for Oxford were saying, I can't believe we're still in this game. Um, we should have been out of sight a long ago, but again, you need that little bit of luck. Like Gary Burtles probably needed it most yeah. United, as we alluded to earlier. But we, we got nil-nil, and it was a positive response. And he said, Christmas again, I thought, wow, no. What do you know about what's taking place in terms of development and, and whatever else? Well, really, it should be you, not Chris, because we don't think that the team's really improved that much. I said, okay. And then again, what would you know about so I went downstairs, got up, and I said to Chris, so Chris saw, saw my face, and he said, Rick, is there a problem? So I said, yeah, he said, me. I said, yeah. So I went out to the car park, and we, we spoke. I said, Chris, you know, they want this and that. He goes, Rick, you sort me out, and I'll go, and you do it for the both of us. I said, no, we came together. We should go together. He goes, no, 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 no. That's what they want you to do. They want you to make yourself redundant. Don't. You stay. Sort me out. And you do it for both of us. And that's what happened. And I went upstairs and I said, you know, I respect Chris's contract to be honoured in a proper manner. He'd only come here three months ago. Um, now you're asking him to leave. He'd given up a secure position at the FA with Howard Wilkinson as one of their regional coaches, Southeast Regional Coach. And he'd been treated abysmally uh, by people that didn't know the game, people that were not uh, never part of the game, people that had no intellectual knowledge of the game in my opinion. And, and this is you know, the year 2000. Really is, right? So you'd expect people to have a, a modicum of knowledge of what they uh, run the balance sheets for. It was just, it, it makes no, them look right. awful. Yeah, and, and rightly so, because you know, respectfully, to a degree, I don't want to be too respectful because they, they weren't that... No, they didn't respect you. You don't respect them. As long as right. you don't libel so them. when the cup was sold that summer and by Cliff Bassett to Mike Watson Chalice and the consortium. Uh, allegedly, I believe it's for three and a half million. Effectively, Mike Watson Chalice was buying the players because the, the council owned the ground. There's no other valued 
assets there that he can sell to, to get the money back. And my estimate, my thought, or I've been told to a degree that Mike Watson Tyrus was told there's some good players here. If you ever want to cash in your chips, you could sell a couple of them and you recoup your money. And Mike was a, a guy, tax exile, again, doesn't know anything about football, came in the 70s into the 80s, enjoyed what he saw there. He saw Hillstein, you know, Foster, Harford playing and thought it was going to be that that he was buying, respectfully again. And when he got there, what he found was just a shell. And 19 players of which 15 had come through the ranks. And that, that kind of progression was unheard of in my time at Luton. And we nearly went to, in liquidation when I was there and we had 24 apprentices and 40 senior pros. So to have 15 players that have been elevated from what considered to be the youth team that are now the first team was warning signs for me. So when I made my football report, after a month, I stated, again, I have no axe to grind with anyone. Um, this was coming straight from an informative position where I've been able to have seen them for a month, been able to assess how they are, assess them not only as footballers, but as people. You know, are they the right type that we want to help and move things forward? And I'd say 13 out of the 19 that were currently there at that time would need to go if, in, in order for things to get better. That was your last managerial job in Great Britain. You've had enormous success over in Trinidad and in Florida. I wanted to ask, because you worked with college kids... Do you think one of the pathways to professional football, like in the States and in Germany in particular, is to get college scholarships? I don't know why more British kids don't leave the academy system at 18, take a football scholarship to Florida or Atlanta or Washington, D.C. or Miami, where David Beckham is, and do a college degree perhaps some football coaching on the side, and then at 22, move back to Britain and, I don't know, work your way up from Oxford or Cambridge football clubs and then become a Premier League player? Do you think there is a pathway? Can that work? 100%, Joey. Not everyone can be a professional in the UK at the same time. And, and, and the fallout, the dropout is immense for youngsters between 18 and 20. And again, that period, and I devised the programme, which unfortunately was taken from me in 2005, when when governing bodies decided to change from the three-year apprenticeship to the two-year apprenticeship. I, Because I was a coach at Sheffield Wednesday, and I knew how important the third year of, of that apprenticeship was in terms of development, football development. I then created a programme which suggested, which I went to all the governing bodies and said, you need to put a period of adjustment in place because these young players are falling out of the game. They're too young to really make a good non-league club's first team. There's fourth division or second division players that are now dropping out that will go into those clubs in Conference North, Conference South and they find themselves in no man's land, in an abyss and they've got three months to try to fix themselves up before they suddenly drift away and what happens also is that they go back into their own environments and they get disillusioned they've been perceived as being a failure even though we know it's subjective but from them, from an emotional standpoint and a welfare standpoint, they're not getting any support. So I said, just put a program on. And I, I want to run a pilot team in London. It's the guys from Arsenal, the guys from Chelsea, the guys from wherever who will get released, can come and get everyday training. We are going to pre- provide courses in refereeing, in fitness training, in sports management, 
And we deliver those alongside with the training, which will keep their fitness levels high. And we'd also showcase those players in professional environments, um, friendly games behind Luton closed doors, friendly game behind Arsenal closed doors, when you could do those things. And this was 2005, 2005 I devised this. When did, when did Glenn set up his soccer school in Marbella? 2000, 2007, I think. And interestingly enough, I went to the Premier League and I took it. They loved the idea and Hugh Jennings was, was asked to help me get this up and running. He was the programme manager at the Premier League at the time in 2006. I went there with my colleague Mike Adams and we left the programme there and we went, went away. Hugh invited me to the exit trials up in um, Staffordshire which Glenn was there at the time looking at potential recruits for his scheme. Hugh said to me on the, on the day, Glenn's doing something similar, but it's not the same as yours. Because I believe there was a, some sort of form of buyout within Glenn's scheme, whereby clubs, if they wanted you, would have to pay some kind of figure for you oh. from the scheme. Where, whereas I was looking to just get them back into professional football by getting them showcased, by keeping them training, keeping them fit. Anyway... I didn't hear anything after 2007. And then suddenly the Nike Academy arrived with exactly the same principles, values, premise, exit strategy and um, delivery. And Hugh Jennings was the director of that. So, yeah, work it out. They say, well, it's come, what Genesis from Nike and the Premier League are supporting it with Nike. And it went global, went throughout the whole world. went to every city where Nike had a presence and run a thing called the Chance. This was for people that were not in the game, that wanted to have the chance to be a footballer. But the actual programme was run in exactly the same manner that my programme, I envisaged my programme, and I left the programme with the Premier League in 2005. So I've always advocated that young players, and even now, when you when you heard about the death of the young man at Manchester City, mm. who'd been at Man City, I still implore the governing bodies, because my scheme, I wanted to do as a pilot, but I wanted to run it throughout the country in all the different regions, north, south, east and west, at the very least to provide a period of adjustment, giving these players the same kind of quality program that they were used to within the system they'd been in sometimes from eight years old, giving them that hunger, getting them still focused that they want to get back in the game, also learning other disciplines and life skills whilst they're doing that, whilst they're still being able to play for a non-league club on a Tuesday night or a Saturday afternoon. It doesn't affect that ability, but they still maintain that love and they've still got that guidance and nurturing whilst they're still developing. Mm-hmm. So if that's not available because no one wants to do it in the UK, they don't want to put the funds behind it, the Premier League, I know the PFA can't, um, the, the Premier League and the, the Football League, which they can put these safe havens throughout the country for these players that have been served the game, that are no longer part of the game, but still want to be, then this college route is perfect for them because you get yourself an education. And most of the time, the guys that go over there, they very rarely come back. I think Dom Dwyer, who's a big star at Orlando and then went to Kansas, he was one of the last graduates from the college system that was British, that went out there, that is doing really well in the USA. He was a top golden boot scorer a few years ago. And, and it is another avenue for them. Yeah, and it's a burgeoning sport over there. I'm really interested to see what happens with uh, American college sport. Jeremy Whiston was the name of the kid who, who, yes. who killed Jeremy himself. Whiston. I just wanted to, to say the name. Thank you. Um, but yeah, American college sport. Um, I didn't realise the season was so short. Did you do you write that it's basically the autumn? Yes. 
my role when I first went into the college situation in America was twofold. It was Cocoa Expos, which was a semi-pro team in Cocoa Beach, Cape Canaveral. And it was also the Florida Institute of Technology in Melbourne, um, Florida. Mm-hmm. And the same person who owned the Cocoa Expos group was the, he was the investor for the college program. He asked me to do both roles. But the college role, and there's so many different rules in terms of when you're allowed to co- uh, train as a team, you're not allowed to train as a team once the season finishes until spring, which is April sometimes. And in April, you can't be present, but the group of players can go 10 at, 10 at a time and train. There's all these different stipulations within the rule book, which really make no sense because part of the development as a football person, as well as your education, you know, is to be able to play regularly and to get those hard yards that you get just through practice, as you said alluded to earlier, Johnny, through five lives, that type of scenario. So I found myself there. That was very enjoyable. Coach who funded it used to like the terminology coach. It's an American thing, you know. Everyone, whether it's basketball, NFL, it comes with a certain prestige to be called coach. You know, you run in a program or a team. So Mr. Stotner was one that liked that title. And so he was coach, but technically I was doing all the technical work for him. 